So, Lord Jesus, through the power of your word, please make us strong. We pray this in your name. Amen. Before I start, I just want to give an invitation to the men in the church. The second half of men's fraternity starts January 15th at 6.30. That's a Tuesday, so a week from this Tuesday. Invite you guys to been coming to come back. Uh, and you guys who have not come, you've missed a wonderful thing, but this is the halfway mark. It'd be a great place to enter in. We'll find a way to catch you up and, and get you going. So I encourage you guys to come on January 15th. If you have teenage sons, 16 or older, encourage you to bring them too. I think this second half in particular is, uh, will be good for them. And I know it's working because I've had a lot of women come up to me and say, Thank you. My husband's. My boyfriend, he's just a whole different man. So guys, you want your woman saying that about you. So come. Remember last fall I said you can get up 20 times, early 20 times to be a better man. Now it's only 10, so you can do it. Okay, to start this sermon, I want to ask you a question. Fill in this blank in your mind. In 2008, I would love to be set free from what? Is there something in your life that you would love to break free from? Maybe it's a financial problem or a health issue. Maybe it's a bad habit or addiction or fear or worry. Maybe you keep hurting the people you love with your anger or feel paralyzed by insecurity or busyness. Or maybe your life is going great. It's up and to the right, but you lack a sense of purpose and you would just love to bust free from that and, and live a life of adventure and significance and meaning and joy. Right now, just make a mental note, or maybe better yet, write down on your bulletin the following. In 2008, I'd love to find freedom from what? Because here's the good news. Whatever it is you're thinking, whatever it is you wrote down, I believe 08 is the year that Jesus can set us free. Whatever bondage you might be in, whether that is a bondage that was imposed on you from the outside, like financial hardship or illness, or a bondage to your own fears, your own behaviors, your own addictions, Jesus can set you free, and that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. And today I want to use the story that we just read as kind of an overview of some of the main themes that I'm going to touch on in this sermon series, of how Jesus sets us free, not only from what holds us in bondage, but sets us free for something as well, for a life of significance, adventure, and joy. In this story, just a little background, in this story, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the book of Exodus is all about how God, working through Moses, frees them. And this is the foundational story for the Jews, and by extension, for us Christians. But it's a very different kind of foundational story. I mean, if you think of the foundational stories of cultures like Greece or Rome or even America, right, they're usually about heroes and conquest and strength, Romulus, Achilles, George Washington. But this is a story about being slaves and having to be delivered. It's a story of vulnerability, of having to rely on God, not about mighty warriors. Which to me tells me that it must have really happened, because if you were making up a foundational story, this would not be the story you'd make up. I had a friend who went to uh, high school in a town called Marblehead, and their mascot was a bunny rabbit. They were the Marblehead bunny rabbits. No kidding. Right? Didn't work too well at a football game. Right? The cheerleaders would be out there cheering, be aggressive, be go bunny rabbits. Right? It just didn't sound right. It's the same with this foundational story. It's not one of strength, really. It says that God's people are not the ones who have it all together. It says that God's people are those whom he delivers 
from some kind of bondage. That's what gives us our identity as God's people. And this story serves as an overview of some of the ways he does that. First, what this story teaches us is that the things we turn to for security can imprison us. Why are the Israelites in Egypt in the first place? Well, if you remember from last spring when we talked about the life of Joseph, you'll remember there was this big famine. So Joseph and his brothers went to Egypt to get food, to find security. And they and their descendants stayed there and they multiplied over the generations. Pretty soon a new pharaoh came to power and he made them all slaves. And there's a metaphor there. The things we turn to for security can imprison us. As I've shared with you before, growing up I was kind of a shy kid and didn't have a lot of friends. So the way I learned to deal with that was to become a people pleaser. You know, I got very good at figuring out what people wanted me to do, what people wanted me to say, and, and that's what I'd say to please them. And it worked. I, it made me some friends. And it was great training if I ever want to be a politician, right? What do you want to hear? I'll say it, right? I can do that. But it became in Egypt for me. It became a place of bondage. Because I was always worried what other people were thinking about me, always fearful of, you know, what someone won't like me, create a lot of performance anxiety. But God has been freeing me from that. How? He made me a pastor. <laughs> Where it is impossible to please all of you all at the same time, right? There's too many different points of view. There's always someone ticked off about something. Basically, it's people please or hell. But God has used that. You're not hell. It's the situation. Is You know what I mean. I might have to rewrite that for the following <laughs> services. <laughs> Problem coming at nine. You get the rough draft, right? <laughs> kind of a trap. It became a trap. It's, kind of, it's, it's a hard place to be a people pleaser. That's a good thing. Because it's teaching me to think less about what other people think about me and worry more about what God wants to do instead. And it's working. And, you know, pretty soon I won't care what any of you think. <laughs> but in a good way. Workaholism, alcohol, anger that makes us feel powerful but wrecks relationships. Whatever we turn to for security, it can imprison us. So what's your Egypt? What have you turned to for comfort and security? And how's that working for you? Jesus can set us free. Second thing we learn from this passage is that even the most powerful forms of bondage can be broken through small acts of uncooperation. And I know that's not a word, but I like it. Shakespeare invented 500 words. I can invent one. And there's a kind of irony in this story. The, the midwives are the most powerless people in this culture. They're slaves. And yet they outsmart the king. Right? The Pharaoh's first strategy for the Israelites is kill all the boy babies when they're born. But the midwives don't do it. And you, you kind of laugh. that They get in this kind of dig at the Egyptians, right? They say, well, we don't have time to kill the babies because, you know, Egyptian women aren't like Hebrew women. Or Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. Frail, pasty, you little wusses, right? <laughs> Hebrew women are tough. They just zip them kids right out before we can even get there. <laughs> they're back at work, you know? Here's the point. As powerful as Pharaoh is, he cannot get his bondage done unless the most powerless people cooperate with him. As powerful as the addiction may seem, as powerful as the depression may seem, or the fear, or the horrible job, or the boredom, as powerful as that bondage may seem, at one level or another, it continues because we cooperate with it. Now, I'm not saying it's all our fault. 
Life may have dealt you some awful blows, but how we respond to that is up to us. Bondage only works by our permission. And the good news of that is that if, it, if bondage only works by our cooperation, well, then we can undo it by not cooperating. And it doesn't have to be some huge Herculean effort on our part. You know, I have a friend who was addicted to Internet pornography, and it was a prison for him. Didn't want to do it, but he kept doing it. And he thought it would take this huge superhuman effort to overcome it. But then he did two simple things. Move the computer to the living room. And then he put a program on it that sends a report to ten of his friends of all the sites he's visited in a month. With stars by the ones that might be questionable. So as, he soon, as soon as he goes to that page, ten people know about it. And if he tries to take that program off his computer, ten people know about that too. Done. Bondage broken. God didn't need heroics. Just a little cooperation with God and some uncooperation with the devil. And now he's not only set free from the addiction, he's set free for some really cool things. You know, his relationship with his wife got a whole lot better when he didn't have those pictures in his head. He had more time because he wasn't always surfing the web. He, had, he wasn't, didn't feel all junked up, so he had this sense of lightness and joy. He's set free for some really cool things. The question this story asks us is, are we cooperating with bondage? Or are we cooperating with God in setting ourselves free from that bondage? The things we turn to for security can imprison us. Our uncooperation can undo bondage. And finally, this story tells us that God can transform whatever bondage we're in for good. You know, the story has an interesting twist toward the end of it. You know, Pharaoh's second strategy for the Israelites is to have all the boy babies thrown into the Nile. So Moses' mother puts him as a baby, puts him in the basket, floats him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter discovers him, keeps him, and raises him in Pharaoh's house. And then she goes and gets Moses' mother and employs her as Moses' nurse. So Moses' mother gets paid to raise her own kid. That's pretty cool, don't you think? Like, I'd like that gig. So let me ask you a question. Did Moses' mother disobey Pharaoh's order? No. She actually obeyed it to the letter. Pharaoh said, throw all the boy babies into the Nile, and that's exactly what she did. Right? There was no fine print about how to throw the baby into the Nile. There was no fine print or no footnotes about baskets. You know, no, no baskets. Right? She obeyed him to the letter of the law. Here's the point. Through God's intervention, the command that was meant to wipe out Israel saved it. And the thing that was meant to bring death brought life. I mean, the worst thing that could have happened, the future deliverer gets thrown into the river and discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. How, I mean, that's as bad as it gets. But God used it for the best thing. Because by being raised in Pharaoh's house, Moses got an education. He learned Egyptian, learned how the Egyptian government worked. All things he would need later in order to lead his people out of slavery. God can take the most evil thing and turn it for our good. That's the cross. Jesus takes the most evil thing ever. We tried to kill our creator and he uses it to forgive our sins. Then he's raised from the dead and evil is made to work for our good. The alcoholic who is delivered from his addiction and in the process gets, gains a strength of character and closeness to God. Or the marriage that is on the rocks on the verge of divorce, but the couple through that learns to work it out and love each other better, and the marriage is healed. The person who loses a loved one, but God becomes so real they can almost see him. Those are cornerstone moments where God takes the worst thing and turns it, uses it for our good. Have you had a cornerstone moment like that? If you haven't, Jesus wants to give you one. 
One of the guys who was on my staff in California grew up with a mother who suffered for years with multiple sclerosis, and then she finally died when he was in high school. And he carried a ton of grief from that. On top of that, he struggled with a lot of insecurity. He, he grew up overweight, and because of his mom's illness, his parents were so consumed with it, they really couldn't give him a lot of affirmation. On top of that, he got a lot of relationships with in, women in very badly, including a broken engagement that happened just two months before the wedding. And all of this led to some debilitating bouts of depression where he could hardly function. And he longed to be set free, set free from the grief, set free from his loneliness, free from insecurities, free from his depression. And gradually Jesus did that through three things. He joined a small group Bible study, he got a Christian therapist, and he prayed like the Dickens. And now he's out of that, and he's actually writing a book now about how Jesus has freed him. And I want to read you just a short part of this book. It's his description of a cornerstone moment in his life where Jesus began to free him. And the chapter is titled, In Case of Emergency, Your Small Group Can Be Used as a Flotation Device. (laughs) He writes, One of the first things I did was I started to open up to my small group. As you may know, small group is a church word, meaning a handful of people who feel guilty most of the time, have lots of things to hide, are full of self-doubt and self-deception, but meet together anyway. (laughs) If it helps, think of them as a support group with fewer cigarettes and more Bibles. My small group mostly drank beer and talked about what night we were going to meet the following week. I would argue this is the ideal format for a small group. They were all good-looking, incredibly smart. They all went to Stanford and dressed like they were from the East Coast. A couple of them actually were from the East Coast, but the others had no good excuse for why their shirts were tucked into their shorts. They called themselves Dudes Five. In contrast, I had just moved from rural Turlock, California, had barely made my way through the diploma mill at Cal State, and still wore flip-flops like they were badges of honor. I went kicking and screaming on the inside, convinced I had nothing to offer this little brain trust, convinced I was ugly, dumb, the wearer of untuckable shirts. But I went, because they kidnapped me. And this was a blessing, because frankly, after years of experiencing friendship primarily as people management instead of soul exchange, I was cranky, lonely, and afraid. I had become a constipated hermit. But, but it was in this beer-drinking, next-time-scheduling crucible that I discovered hope. Let me give you an example. Not too long ago, I had an experience in which the sum total of all the pain I'd ever had caught me like a rogue wave. I was held under long enough to warrant daily visits to my therapist. After one of these sessions, I walked to a park. My mind flooded with pictures of all my losses over the years, moving ten times and having, always having to start over, all kinds of dating relationships that hadn't panned out but had left disfiguring scars, my mom taken away by multiple sclerosis, a broken and great engagement, credit card debt, and the extra 15 pounds I'd put on trying to self-soothe with cookies. It was all there, spread out like a giant relief map of pain, showing every valley of grief, every snaking river of hopelessness that had carved its way into my emotional landscape. I have never felt more desperate. So I called a friend who was a fellow member of Dudes 5 and who was attending seminary in Canada at the time. I said about six words before I burst into tears. I'm pretty sure he was in the middle of studying, so that had to be kind of weird for him. When it became clear that I was incoherent with grief, he did something odd. He started to pray for me. He didn't know what was going on with me because I couldn't get the words out to explain it, so he just prayed and prayed and prayed for me over the phone as I cried. It felt strange at first, but I slowly began to calm down. 
It was exactly what I needed in that moment. A friend who would sit with me in the pain. I realized for the first time that while there would obviously be more pain in life, I was not going to have to go through it myself anymore. Even if the same events were to repeat themselves, if somehow my mom came back and then got sick and died all over again, I had the option of going through it with people. Not just people around me, accident witnesses craning their necks to see the wreckage. People actually with me. It's hard to put into words what that meant to me. It was like watching footage of a destructive tornado in reverse. The black twister spinning backwards until the debris it carried snapped back into the shape of a home. Well, after this moment, he started to change a lot. He fully grieved and let go of his mother's death. He switched careers, and now he's studying to be a therapist so he can help people. And eventually he found and married a great woman, and they have a marriage that is, that is full of joy and closeness. closeness. It's just a great marriage. And now he knows that he knows that he knows that God loves him no matter what. And all the things he turned to for security, food, work, people-pleasing, he let those things go and leaned on Jesus and Jesus' people alone. And he stopped cooperating with the bondage, took some proactive steps, joined a small group, started to pray a whole lot. And now the very things that oppressed him now drive him to be a counselor and write a book so he can help other people. God used those things for good. He even looks physically different. Every time I see him, he looks younger. And he speaks with confidence and authority. He knows where he's going. He smiles a whole lot more than I ever saw him smile before. He is free. Free from grief. Free from insecurity. Free from depression. Free from loneliness. And free for a life of joy, purpose, and adventure. He's a different man. So what about you? Back to the beginning of the sermon. That thing you wrote down that you would love to find freedom from. What about you? Will you pray daily for that thing? Will you this year be saying, Lord, show me how I'm cooperating with my own bondage so I can uncooperate with it. And then, Lord Jesus, set me free. Free for closeness with you and a life of adventure and joy. And then watch him work. And he may start slow and it may be silent at first. You know, in the passage we read, it's interesting. God is barely mentioned. But he's there working behind the scenes through midwives by guiding Moses' basket down the river. Now, had you been there and, and seen that baby floating down the river, you probably would not have said, oh, look, God's freeing his people. But he was. Life's like that. Sometimes we don't see God at work, but he is. He's working behind the scenes to set you free. The first chapter of Exodus begins with God's people groaning in slavery. But the book of Exodus ends, the last chapter, with the description of God's glory descending on the temple. That is, Exodus begins with groaning, and it ends in glory, and that's what he can do for you. And the freedom starts with a very quiet God working through some very ordinary people to break the bondage of 400 years of slavery. And if God can do that with a baby and a few midwives, well, then how can he set you free in 08? Lord Jesus, you are the freedom bringer. Thank you. We give you all the places of our bondage and ask that you set us free. Deliver us from those things, and we will be grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen.